Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. How comfortable are you that you know how Bitcoin, as well as other cryptos, are valued? This question is not about precision, which appraisers continually aspire to in reaching values in houses, cars, and collectibles. We all have these kind of price ranges in mind, as reference prices have local, national, and global trends, and because there are so many of them with long histories, they have low volatilities. Even stocks and bonds have certain accepted evaluation metrics, such as price-earnings ratios, revenue and profit metrics, financial returns on assets, and the like. Let's consider a more complex topic. In the late 1990s, many companies rode the internet boom and raised money from investors who were emotionally captivated by the early digital promises and hype. The idea of considering, at that time, the income statement and the balance sheet of a pioneering high-tech company was considered mundane and out of touch with progress. It was far more engaging to new investors to be told inspiring stories of capturing large, new consumer audiences by web page views and click-throughs. Early liftoff trends in new businesses with exciting stories of future market conquests brought in many who wanted the quick road to personal wealth. Those of you who invested in emerging high-tech stocks in the 1990s, particularly the 1995 to 2000 period, experienced the most creative stories that attracted many billions, if not trillions, of investor funds, especially many new and small investors were attracted, who feared missing out on the technology boom. Between 1995 and 2000, the NASDAQ composite stock market rose 400%. It reached a price-earnings ratio of 200, dwarfing the peak price-earnings ratio of 80 for the Japanese Nikkei 225 during the Japanese asset price bubble of 1991. As you notice, we have a lot of booms in the United States, but overall, the economy over 50 or more years has grown at only a sobering average of 2 to 3% a year. But I digress. On Friday, March 10, 2000, the NASDAQ Composite Stock Market Index peaked at 5,048. But the investment party was only beginning. By the end of the stock market downturn of 2002, stocks had lost $5 trillion in market value since that peak. At its trough in October of 2002, the NASDAQ 100 had dropped to 1,100, down 78% from its peak. What happened to all those wonderful and sometimes financially romantic tales of investment pathways paved with gold by high tech? As always, there is at least a small amount of truth in everything. Amazon, eBay, Shutterfly, Priceline, and a tiny, tiny group of others in the thousands of dot-com boomers fulfilled the dreams of huge success. Most failed, and most investors lost heavily. Valuing new global technologies is an issue beyond our capabilities, but continuing to invest with no idea how to value the investments is historically a recipe for personal financial disaster. I'll get to Bitcoin shortly. In a 2015 book, 
venture capitalist Fred Wilson, who had funded many dot-com companies, managed to lose 90% of his net worth when the dot-com bubble burst, and he had this to say about the dot-com bubble. Nothing important has ever been built without irrational exuberance, meaning that you need a medium to cause investors to open up their pocketbooks and finance the building, for example, of the railroads or the automobile industry or the aerospace industry or whatever. In the dot-com bubble, much of the capital invested was lost, but also much of it was invested in a very high throughput backbone for the internet, lots of software that ultimately worked, and databases and server structures. All that stuff allowed us to have what we have today, which has changed our lives. That's what all this speculative mania back then built. And I'll stop the quote there. To give you a great resource for better understanding manias, panics, and crashes, I would refer to you Robert Solow, S-O-L-O-W, who researched and summarized this subject in his book by the same name. Just go to Amazon and consider the paperback titled Mania, Panics, and Crises, written by Robert Solow, published by the Macmillan several years ago, and it covers up and through the 2008-2009 Great Recession. Now for Bitcoin. Mike Busella, head of Block Tower Capital, noted that Bitcoin is still a new asset class. It remains in the price discovery stage. Quote, it's the most volatile of any asset's life cycle, the discovery stage. Additionally, Bitcoin has engaging stories about becoming a medium for transactions and a store of value. Newer stories have it that Bitcoin will become a global currency, like the dollar or the euro or the yen. And the storytellers are growing. We know that Bitcoin, as a medium of transaction and store of value, has an argument, and that argument is gaining traction, including Elon Musk, who has many agendas well beyond caring for you and I. He seemingly moves Bitcoin prices with each of his tweets. I would also refer to Kathy Wood, the head of ARK Invest, A-R-K Invest, and her company recently wrote that Bitcoin's market capitalization or value could increase to $2 trillion, and today it's a bit over $600 billion. And all it would have to do would be to capture 5% of the global monetary base. After all is said and done, no matter what the experts say and continue to say, it's important to understand where Bitcoin is deriving its value from a medium of exchange, and then secondly, as a currency. When Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonym, first shared his paper on Bitcoin, his focus was developing a mechanism of financial transactions that can be processed without banks or other financial intermediaries. However, if you look at the current market capitalization of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, investors are expecting much beyond just financial transactions. Bitcoin's market capitalization, as I mentioned, is over $600 billion. And if you look at all the major cryptocurrencies, their combined market value capitalization is around $2 trillion. For perspective, this is much higher than Visa's market value of $500 billion, MasterCard's market value or capitalization of $360 billion, or any major bank or financial institution's market value. 
Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies are nowhere near processing transactions close to what these other institutions process. So clearly, Bitcoin is not being priced as the medium of transactions. Since this is an entirely new scenario with no historical precedent other than other manias and, and crashes, I'd like to bring your attention to the El Salvador experiment which is going on right now. If you Google Bitcoin and El Salvador, you can probably find all you want to know about it. But I'll give you a little bit of background. The head of El Salvador turned Bitcoin into legal tender. He basically justified the move in El Salvador as a demonstration that a community can actually benefit from Bitcoin. And he wanted to demonstrate that on a countrywide basis. Interestingly, two days after El Salvador passed the bill adopting Bitcoin as a parallel currency, the International Monetary Fund was already pushing back, warning crypto assets can pose significant risks. In El Salvador, a really brief summary of what has been learned so far, in my view, is that Bitcoin has been used to save the time of workers who received in the past paychecks who would take a half a day off work every couple of weeks to go to the bank to cash their paychecks. Bitcoin has actually saved this amount of time. And the worker Bitcoin users have also been utilizing Bitcoin to a degree for making transactions. This makes sense to me. There's a real use of Bitcoin or a digital currency in a developing country for sure. Beyond the transactional value, an argument is emerging globally that Bitcoin should be valued like a currency that is in circulation. And I mentioned Kathy Wood of ARK Invest, and she very much subscribes to that argument based on what she's written. If one subscribes to Bitcoin as a private currency, the question of where Bitcoin derives its value from will change to where any private currency, where does any private currency derive its value from? So far, we know that China is effectively banning Bitcoin transactions in favor of its own cryptocurrency. Additionally, India and Turkey have added to China's bans and controls of their own. Janet Yellen, our U.S. Treasury Secretary, has added negativity, but nevertheless the mania continues, which is not unusual given the momentum of manias. Consider that the Federal Reserve, Congress, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and so on, have the specific duty to regulate and issue currency. And over the past centuries, if you really look at monetary history, you'll see they take that duty very seriously. They protect that duty as it is a main control in their view of inflation and growth. So this is not just an add-on responsibility. This is a core responsibility that they have, again, to regulate and issue currency. So consider they can throw cold water over Bitcoin at any time. Well, if that's true, why don't they do it now? My thought is the Western central banks want to see the technical infrastructure developed, if not perfected. In my opinion, it's all about their timing, not whether they'll regulate Bitcoin and bring in their own cryptocurrencies. I fully expect that they will. But they will do it at a time when they know the technical infrastructure has been well-seasoned and works really well. Why do I think that? Well, I'll give you a basic example. It's quite simplified, so I apologize, but I think it illustrates what we're talking about. Suppose there's a self-contained economy that uses and prints its own currency. 
call it X, for transactions and produces total goods and services worth T. A group of people, either inside or outside the economy, prints a new currency, call it Y. This currency is in limited supply and is distributed among that group. Now the group goes to the political leader of that self-contained economy and asks she or he to agree to use Y as a currency as well. The leader agrees. So now we have X plus Y in total currencies, chasing goods and services worth T. Don't worry, I'm not going to get any more complicated than this. So what does this mean for the wealth of initial holders of X and Y? The wealth simply gets transferred from holders of X, and X has been in place for many, many years, whose cash can buy a lesser number of goods and services than it previously was because they transferred part of their assets or cash to Y. And just by printing the currency, the money moved over to Y, the digital currency. Now, one can argue that most of the central banks and governments do the same when they keep on printing money. However, the money from central banks goes to the government, which is supposed to spend the money on well-being of the residents of their local economy or country. In reality, the government is taking a loan, and if it repays the loan in the long term, there will actually be no money printed. But that usually doesn't happen, so we can see successive governments keep raising debt ceilings. Bitcoin and other cryptos are essentially providing a mechanism to keep the debt ceiling constant. However, the cost at which they are providing it is by transferring wealth from the holders of previous currency to Bitcoin or crypto holders. This cure is actually worse than the problem. With central banks money printing, well, with their binge of money printing, the money was being spent by the government on activities that they consider will benefit their residents or citizens. So essentially, it was wealth redistribution happening in that economy itself for the supposed good of all. With Bitcoin, the wealth is being distributed from the local economy to the holders of Bitcoin. If the government is willing to introduce a cryptocurrency, it can print its own digital tokens and then replace the old traditional currency with its own new currency. That way, the wealth will not be transferred from the residents of that economy using traditional currency to the selected group which printed or introduced a particular currency. And maybe just to cut through it and make it easy, I think you all have read about the cryptocurrency billionaires, those who have issued the cryptocurrency in the initial years who now have 5, 10, 15 percent or more of Bitcoin and their wealth of $100 billion and more was generated by being a part of issuing some of the digital currencies back when they were pennies. So that wealth basically from the traditional economy has been transferred to Bitcoin holders who had little or no cost and essentially all they did was print digitally and distribute. So at what point does the government, who is in a competing position, object to that? I suspect we're closer to that than most experts would admit. I believe the private cryptocurrency or any private currency, including Bitcoin, will derive its value at the expense of traditional currency holders. This is a big problem, and it's losing, kind of a losing proposition for the residents of countries that adopt it. While Bitcoin holders market it as a utopian dream, it's in essence a dystopian nightmare with wealth getting transferred from those who use traditional currency to those who created and hold Bitcoin. 
I believe these dynamics will be realized in countries like El Salvador soon. With Bitcoin as a currency and once regulators, decision makers realize that this is happening, they will act. And by the way, I should point out in the early days of Bitcoin, it was thought that it would be totally confidential. And as I mentioned in prior podcasts, Bitcoin transactions can be and are audited and tracked by government agencies, including the IRS. Early thoughts included that the U.S. would be allowing developing Bitcoin as much as possible to learn about problems in the technology before adopting its own U.S. dollar cryptocurrency. So once again, I believe that this will happen much before Bitcoin reaches general acceptance as an alternative currency. Once regulators and decision makers start realizing that they're essentially transferring wealth from their citizens to Bitcoin holders, a crackdown is likely which will severely limit the adoption as a currency and will result in significant downside price adjustments for Bitcoin, in my opinion. We started discussing the value. It's true that no one knows, and it's likely, Bitcoin and cryptos are today's example of financial mania. Since I also don't know Bitcoin's value and see its story balloon getting punctured by global central banks, I'll stand aside, that's my decision, and wait for it to develop as a low-cost transaction alternative and a potential companion to blockchain-related import-export real estate and large money contracts and transfers based on cost advantages, which seem likely for transferring large amounts of money. Bitcoin transactions seem that they will be much cheaper than bank-related transactions of similar amounts. May or may not materialize, but it would seem quite likely. But again, I go back to the dot-com boom and bust, and like then, companies, or in this case, cryptocurrencies, will survive in some form. But it will take some time to figure out what that form is. And in the meantime, that many initial investors may experience a bloodbath of losses on the journey. So I certainly wish you well. I want you to be really careful and vigilant. I will be reminding that we are in the business of education and not investment advice. So please do continue to study and learn on your own and do consider the book that I had referenced if you plan to take a long journey with the cryptocurrencies. We've seen these manias occur many times and the result is often the same. Take care and enjoy the hopeful post-COVID environment. Bye. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.